Merry Christmas. Um, my name is Sean Sears. I'm the lead pastor here, and I want to say thanks for being a part of our weekend service. So whether you're in Avon, Braintree, Bridgewater, or watching online, thank you for being a part of uh, Grace Church. Uh, we're in the second week of this series that we're calling Christmas Classics, and we're covering different songs um, that, we, that, that are commonly sung at Christmas, and then uh, going back to the passage of Scripture that those songs are based on, and then doing the teaching from that, that passage of Scripture. Right before we jump into this, um, at halftime, we just prayed for uh, the Hope Project, uh, particularly Fostering Hope, and I want to lean in on that a little bit more, uh, if it's all right, because uh, the stat that was given to us this past year in March, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm fighting off a cold, <clears throat> So if I hack up a lung, um, just bear with me, um, and I'll try not to be too messy with my hacking. It's like, like if something comes, never mind, I'll keep my mouth shut, or I'll cover my mouth will be my promise to you uh, this service. <clears throat> oh, my word. But there are over 4,000 kids uh, in the state of Massachusetts who are not actually in a foster home. They're in a group home. That means that over Christmas, there will be over 4,000 kids who will be waking up in government care, uh, in, in, in an institutional environment, um, not for anything that they've done, uh, but because they're victims of decisions, uh, poor decisions that were made by those who should have taken better care of them. Um, and I am thankful to God for those who uh, started fostering this past year. I think there are 26 different families in our church who became foster parents. Uh, but we, we, we re like, in the name of Jesus, we need a whole lot more. So if you have it in your heart to love kids who don't have anybody available to love them, when we go through this again this next March, uh, that's when the class is going to be. Please sign up for that. Uh, you can sign up for the class even if you don't become a foster parent. I'm asking you to sign up for the class because you're interested enough to pray about it. That's what I'm asking you to do. So there'll be more information about that. I am tremendously excited about our HOPE project. This last year, we gave over $124,000 to the 12 different projects that we partnered with for 2018. And the HOPE project this year is the projects that we'll be partnering with for 2019. And I'm hoping we can do a lot more even for those. Fostering HOPE is one of those. And, and I, one, of our, one of our staff pastors uh, was, 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 was adopted. And I'm thankful to God. Some of you guys may even be adopted. So you know the value of families um, showing love to kids as though they were their own who aren't their own, right? <clears throat> so that's just, I just wanted to like just plug that just a, just a little bit, just a little bit more. Last weekend, I said, was the first week in our series. We did Oh Holy Night. Uh, Chris and Stephanie Ballinger uh, came through, uh, on, you know, because, you know, Boston's on the way home from Mongolia, apparently. Um, not really. Uh, but, but they came through, shot, shot some video for us, and um, they're fantastic people. And I just had like a day and a half to hang out with them. And uh, so I took them. If you've got one day to hang out with somebody that you love, and you're going to take them into the city for rest or to, to eat, what restaurant are you going to take them to? Right? Like you know the restaurant you're going to take them to. And it's the restaurant that has the best clam chowder in all of Boston, uh, which is the sail loft next to Columbus Park. We all know that, right? Right? Everybody knew that? You didn't know that? Okay, uh, in my opinion, uh, well, it's not just my opinion. The Bostonian Magazine actually rated uh, the sail loft as the number one clam chowder for 2018. Nod your head if you already knew that. All right, shake your head if you didn't know that. I just want to see. All right. Um, <clears throat> but, but truthfully, 
Every year for like the last decade, they're in the top three of best clam chowders of, of, uh, in all of Boston. Now, it happens to be my favorite uh, because it's not a tourist spot. Like Legals, I don't go to Legals um, because, I, number one, I don't think they have the best clam chowder. That's, that's, I think that's a scientific fact. I, not backed up by any science. I just think it's a scientific fact. Um, but I, I don't go there just like I don't go to Mike's uh, Pastry in downtown in, in the North End because that's a tourist trap. Uh, because everybody who actually lives in the North End goes to Bova's around the corner, and that is a scientific fact, and there's probably science to back it up. I'm not sure. Um, but, but if you know, if, like if you got friends in town, you're going to take them to the best places. So you're going to, like I'm going to, so I, I took them to, to the sail loft uh, for clam chowder because it really is the best clam chowder. It is like a Bostonian magazine, the number one. Uh, Al Roker was here a couple of months ago, I believe it was in September, and he was eating a bowl of the sail loft's clam chowder on TV, that's the science, that's all the science you needed right there, Al Roker, right, meteorologist, if he says it's the best clam chowder, dang it, it's the best clam chowder, um, so I took him there, and uh, bragging all about the clam chowder, and then um, I was the only one who ate clam chowder, so <clears throat> I think there's a credibility issue with me, not with the restaurant, then after eating at the sail loft, I walked them a few blocks uh, up into um, um, the north end, and I showed them where Mike's and Modern are, uh, and, and then, but then we went down to the next street to Bova's. Uh, I forget the name of that street, but it's the same street that the Old North Church is on, and Bova's uh, uh, actually is, is it, well, it, <laughs> I've got stories about bovas. I'm not. I'm trying to defilter, right, it's for the sake of time. But that's the best. They have the best cannolis. And um, then I had some friends come in Tuesday night for a meeting that we hosted here at Grace Church on Wednesday and Thursday with some pastors from around the country. <clears throat> and for my three friends who came in the night a day early, um, I only got to hang out with them one night. They had already had dinner. I met up with them at the restaurant as they were finishing, and then uh, I asked them if they wanted to do a, a pastry like a blind taste test. So we did get a cannoli from Bova's, a cannoli from Mike's, and a cannoli from Modern. And, um, and I told them my, uh, Bova's always win. Um, and, and usually Mike's comes in second, Modern comes in third. Um, and, and it didn't really work out that way this time. I didn't really want to tell you that. But like I'm a preacher, so like I got to be honest, right? So it ended up that two of the three guys said Modern was best, Bova's was second. And um, the guy who actually knows cannolis said Bova's was first. Modern was second. Neither one of them said Mike's, and that's the first time Mike's wasn't in the top two. So I think all three of my friends are morons. So I don't know what's going on with, with that. But what I'm saying is that there are things that we become passionate about. And when we become passionate about these things, we spread the news, right? Is that true? Yes or no? We do. Um, how many of you guys know somebody who's passionate about essential oils? Nod your head if you know someone who's passionate about essential oils. Um, if you are into essential oils, I need to let you know in the name of Jesus, you're in a cult. <laughs> and if you need help getting out of this cult, there's an 800 number that you can call. But you essential oils people are out of your mind. You're crazy, right? You essential oils. Or I, I know of another cult that a lot of you guys are in is CrossFit, right? A lot of you guys are in the CrossFit cult. And you can't shut the heck up about CrossFit, 
All right? Like, okay, you Navy SEALs wannabe jokers. The rest of us are okay, right? We don't want to flip tires because we can't think of any practical application in the real world for that skill. So we're not even going to do it. Um, then we also know people who just can't shut up about the Yankees um, and nod your head if they drive you crazy. Yes or no? And if your head isn't nodding, you don't love God. <laughs> That's science, too, by the way. Like, we know people who are just like, like, if you're crazy, like, if you, when you find something you love, you share it. Yes or no? Yeah. And, and I think we get crazy passionate about a lot of things. I just don't know if we're passionate about the most important things. And that's the story that we're going to be looking at in Luke chapter 2. So last week, we talked about O Holy Night and the idea that that song was written um, by a Frenchman uh, at the request of his parish priest. Uh, uh, he, he was a disaffected Catholic, like, like many of us. Uh, and then he had a Jewish composer friend write the, the music to it, composed the melody uh, for, that, for that song. It became wildly popular uh, all, all over the world. And uh, how that song comes from chapter 2. So what we're doing in, throughout the rest of this series is we're going through the different songs that cover uh, Luke, Luke chapter 2. Uh, but last week we said that there were three characteristics of the nature of God that made Christmas possible. And then Paul said, let that, those, these same characteristics be in you. The same characteristics that were in Jesus that made Christmas possible are the same three characteristics that need to be in each one of us. And that is that we need to be willing to die to our own rights. That was the first one. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, next week, well, we, last week, we talked about the, the second attitude that was in God that made Christmas possible, according to Philippians chapter 2, is that Jesus put himself in a position to serve. And we're going to be talking about that next week. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about the third characteristic of God that made Christmas possible, according to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And that was that Jesus laid down his life for the glory of God and for the good of others. And again, that's what we'll be talking about in the last week of this series. Um, so we're in the second week of the series, and we're talking about that idea of, we're going more specifically into the idea of, of, of being the kind of people who are willing to let go or to die to our rights, to, to live a self-directed, autonomous life. And this, this sounds threatening to, to us, um, but honestly, it's the only way to follow Jesus. Um, Jesus actually sa uh, said that if anybody wants to come after me, they must, lay, they, they must deny themselves, they must sacrifice their life, and then actually live like me. And, and, and then in Romans chapter 12, Paul said that if you're going to do this, then you're going to have to make your, the way you live your life a living sacrifice. It's got like your life is now a free will offering where I make a conscious choice to let go of my rights over myself. And I voluntarily, as a devoted follower of Jesus, yield control of me, uh, all that I have and where I'm going in my life, to, to God and, and his plan for me. Um, so we're going to be doing that song. We're looking at that song, uh, O Come All Ye Faithful. How many guys are familiar with that song? Nod your head if you're familiar with that song. O Come All Ye Faithful. I'm not singing anymore. I've got a cold, and that's why it would be. It has nothing to do with the fact that I can't sing because I'm a brilliant singer. Um, I just got a cold right now. Um, but that, that song, uh, so we, we looked into the, we tried to research, like, where does this song come from? And there's six different countries that claim that they wrote that song. 
Okay, so like everybody in the world, like, like Germany claims that one, Russia claims that one, France claims it, uh, Spain claims it, and Portugal. Portugal, like, like the king of Portugal, king, I, I forget the guy's name, but one of the kings of Portugal said he, he wrote the song too. And um, so somebody's lying, I don't know who it is, and we can't figure it out. Uh, because truthfully, you know, like you go to Wikipedia, it's all over the place. And then when you go to those websites that are dedicated to this type of research, uh, even they disagree with each other. So the whole thing is terribly confusing. I have no idea where this song comes from. It came from somewhere because we got it. And what it covers is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 17. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be at today. Um, in, in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, we've got the story of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, we've got the story of Mary and Joseph being, uh, I was going to say, Mary and Joseph being great with child. Uh, that's not science. Um, it was Mary who was great with child, not Joseph. Uh, but Joseph and Mary, who was great with child, that were coming down to Bethlehem uh, because that is where the ancestors of Joseph were from. Uh, they were both, actually, Joseph and Mary uh, were both uh, distant descendants of King David, uh, who was from Bethlehem. Um, and then so when Caesar declared uh, this, this tax, uh, and census for all of, of his empire, he required that everybody go back to the city of their ancestry for the census and to pay their taxes. So uh, Joseph and Mary being engaged, Mary being great with child, uh, no doubt already scandalous because they weren't married yet, um, traveling down to Bethlehem in, in her ninth month or like tenth month. I, I, it's like nine. I got in an argument with my wife's doctor one time um, because uh, he told me that you're actually pregnant for 10 months, and I said nine. And so me and the OBGYN got in an argument. I think he's the doctor, so he's probably right. Um, it just didn't sound right to me. So there, whatever week she's in, this chick is great with child, all right? And riding on this donkey from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem might have actually sped up the delivery date of this baby. And when they get there, uh, you guys know the story how how there's how there's no there's no place for them to stay, and the one you know bed and breakfast in town uh, is is full up, uh, but the guy gives them a a barn in the back, which actually was uh, most historians believe was probably a, a cave um, that would have provided shelter uh, for the guy's livestock, and so uh, they go into this this cave where Jesus is born in a feeding trough. Um, in, a, in, a, in a room, um, no doubt, filled with uh, animal feces smelling like urine. And that was, that was the situation of, of Jesus' Jesus's birth. Um, and when he's born, there's a birth announcement. Uh, and that's what the song, Oh Come All Ye Faithful, uh, comes. It's that call. The, the angels are, are singing this. And uh, that's where we pick up the story in verse 8. So if you've got your Bible, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. That night, the night that Mary gave birth to Jesus, uh, there were shepherds staying, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 17. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, uh, don't be afraid. And, and by the way, and I, I want to say this, 
because it's not in my notes, and if I don't say it now, I don't think I will. But uh, up until this time, um, there was never a time in history where, where an angel told them not to be afraid. Uh, but when it came to Jesus, because it, you were supposed to be afraid of the presence of God. Um, in fact, when Moses sees the burning bush, you know, he comes to it and then he's, he's afraid. And God doesn't tell him, don't be afraid. He says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground and you best recognize Right? So that's what he did. He takes off his sandals. And so, like, there is a, there is a fear of God that was supposed to, you were supposed to recognize that there should be a huge gap between me and God. And this gap is created by our sinfulness, our disobedience towards God and our selfishness towards others. And it was fine with God that you were afraid of his presence um, because the idea is that you would recognize your responsibility to repent of this sin all the way up until Jesus shows up. Because now the punishment for mankind's sin is not going to be poured out on us any longer. It's going to be poured out on Jesus. So now for the very first time in history, we don't have to be afraid of God. Jesus is why I don't have to be afraid of God anymore. Because everything that I know I deserve for all the sins I've committed, everything I deserve has already been dished out. It just wasn't dished out on me. Jesus took that. I don't have to be afraid any longer of God. Because of what Jesus has done. So now that Jesus has shown up, when people are terrified, the first words are, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You see this all throughout the New Testament. In fact, that phrase, don't be afraid, is like only, only three times in the Old Testament. And it's dozens of times in the New Testament. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't have to be afraid of God because Jesus took my punishment for me. And that's what he's here for. So you no longer have to be afraid, which is what the angels say to, to the shepherds. They're terrified when they see these angels because when, when these angels show up, it's, it's got to be bad news because mankind is so broken and screwed up. Can't be good news until now. This is the first time where there's finally good news because there's hope. Mankind isn't all on his own. Mankind isn't hopeless anymore. Mankind isn't lost adrift, destined to spend an eternity separated from God. Because now the rescuer has finally shown up. So you don't have to be afraid. Back at it. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. I mean, this is crazy. Good news, great joy for everyone. Not just for the Jews. This for everybody. Now, this is what God had hinted at with the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament. It says, someday the Messiah will show up, the rescuer of all of mankind will show up, and he'll be a light to the Gentiles. He'll be for everybody. God told, God told this to, to, to even Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that, that, that through you, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And now the angels are just kind of reaffirming everything that God had told Abraham he would do. God's now keeping his promise to get done. Back at it. <clears throat> Verse 11, the Savior, yes, the Messiah. Uh, remember, Messiah is the Greek word, or excuse me, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which just means the rescuer, which is talked about in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, we talked about that last week. The Savior, yes, the rescuer, the Lord, 
has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, which is important that he was born in Bethlehem because Micah, one of the prophets of Israel, had said that when the Messiah shows up, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. So he, that's where he was born. The angels say, hey, listen, he's born in Bethlehem. So if any of them had been raised, and they, more than likely, they, they also had been raised in Hebrew school. Um, but weren't super sharp. That's why they didn't stay in it, because the sharpest stayed in it long enough to become rabbis uh, or the religious ruling class. They're not in the religious ruling class. They're not rabbis. So at some point, they kind of washed out of the educational system. So they're not the brightest uh, bulbs in the house, so, so to speak. Um, but they, they, did know, they did know some things. And you will recognize them by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Uh, and, and as shepherds, they, they knew what a manger was. It's a feeding trough, which, which probably was odd. That, that, I wonder if that struck any of them as odd. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, uh, angels, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds uh, said, um, uh, who wants to go to Bethlehem? <laughs> like, that, that would be the, hey, I'm going. Hey, anybody else want to go? Let's, let's go to Bethlehem. They said, uh, let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord just told us about. They hurried to the village. They found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened, what the angel had said to them about, about this child. <clears throat> And, and here's what I, I love about, about this. And there's an announcement. And with the, with, uh, the families that are, being, that are dedicating themselves to raise their kids, to have the best opportunities, knowing to follow Jesus as, as possible, uh, these families, um, um, it, when, when their babies were born, no, no doubt there was an announcement that went out. Uh, maybe just on Facebook, but at least on Facebook. Am I right? Uh, maybe even cards were written. Um, to everybody important that they could think of. And, and when Jesus, the Messiah, God himself leaves heaven and, and shows up on earth, uh, God the Father says, um, I, I want to give an announcement uh, that, I, that I've kept my promise and that I did what I said I would do and, and that I fulfilled everything that I told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob I would do and that I hinted at all the way back in the garden. Um, and, and this is important that news gets out. And so the angels, you know, Gabriel, the archangel who's responsible for giving messages, right? Every time we see Gabriel in the Bible, he's giving messages. Um, every time Michael, the archangel, is, is mentioned in the Bible, uh, he's, he's got a sword in his hand and he's fighting. So um, I'm thinking like one of them's in charge of like, like, you know, press releases and the other one's in charge of, you know, uh, busting heads. Um, uh, like if I've got a guardian angel, I want him from Michael's troops, not Gabriel's troops. I'm just saying. Um, but no doubt Gabriel is like, okay, who do you want me to tell? Like priests, kings, should Caesar know? Uh, what about King Herod since he's responsible for all of Judea? Um, like like who, who gets this message? And God says, I'll tell you who I want you to invite. I want you to invite the shepherds. And the angels are like, and? And he goes, that's it, the shepherds. That, that's, now let me tell you why this is important. Because in Jesus' day, the job of a shepherd was for the ignorant. It was for those who couldn't get a job anywhere else. So if you think about people who are generally considered unemployable, but who find a job somewhere, like what job did you just imagine that they were able to actually get? Because that's the job these guys had. Now, the patriarchs, during that time in human history, when mankind was traveling around in nomadic tribal groups, 
there was nothing wrong with shepherding. Sheiks and slaves were shepherds. Everybody were shepherds. But then the Egyptians came along, and the Jews moved over to the land of Goshen, which was a part of Egypt, and they were an agrarian culture society who, who hated shepherds because those sheep ate their crops. So as these tribal groups stopped being so nomadic and started planting down roots and growing civilization and becoming more organized and cultured, shepherding got pushed to the fringes of society. And it was no longer considered a lofty position. In fact, you had to move outside of the cultured areas because what you did for a living threatened how I made my living. Does this make sense? So then that's why it was so like amazing during King David's time um, when Samuel comes to Jesse, David's dad, and says, uh, one of your sons is going to be anointed king. Go get all of your boys. And he brings in his seven oldest sons and lines them up. And then Samuel goes to each one of his sons, and God says, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And he gets all the way to the end. He looks over at Jesse, and he goes, do you have any other kids? Because God said it was going to be one of his sons. Jesse said, these are the only kids I got, but it's none of them. So there's something Jesse's not telling me. So Samuel goes, do you have any other kids? And he goes, yeah, I've got David, but he's a shepherd. Like, they, like that's, he's a shepherd. Like, this, this is my son who doesn't really have a future. Like, I put all my eggs, and, and the top boy's working down. Somebody had to take care of this, and it definitely wasn't going to be Eliad, my oldest son, because he's destined for great things. But it's just David, and he's a shepherd. Like, it can't be him. And that was what was so unique in David's day is that he goes from shepherd. Like, that was the, the irony, is that he goes from shepherd, the very lowest of the low, to king, the highest of the high. And that was what was so amazing, even in David's day, about that, that move, about his calling. There are other Jewish passages of Scripture that we're not going to read where it's even used as a punishment where God says, I'm going to make you shepherds again. And he was talking to them about how he was going to make them lose all of their gains and they were going to go back to being nomadic. Like that was going to be part of their punishment is that they would end up being, being shepherds. In Jesus' day, the shepherds were ceremonially unclean. They didn't do their ritual bathing that the Jews were supposed to do. So when the Bible talks about publicans and tax collectors and sinners, in that category of sinners, you had prostitutes, thieves, and shepherds. They weren't allowed to go to temple. They didn't go to synagogue. They were uneducated. They were ignorant. Like when you couldn't get a job anywhere else, You'd go be a shepherd, but once you become a shepherd, you weren't never getting any other job but that one. In fact, there's a historian from Jesus' day that said honest people would never buy a sheep from a shepherd because of the assumption that it probably was stolen. These are the people that God chose to tell the news to. Why? Why would he go to the people on the very bottom rung? Why would those people be the very first people that would find out and by the way, do you realize that the wise men never saw Jesus in the manger? I, don't, I just ruined your nativity set. <laughs> Sorry, but that's actually in the Bible, that when, the mis, that when the wise men show up, they found Jesus and Mary in a house. It's in the Bible. Read it. So when the wise men find Jesus and Mary, by then, somebody had made room for them in a house, and they got out of the cave. 
So the wise men weren't there on the night that Jesus was born. The only people that actually saw Jesus on the day of his birth, the only people in the entire world were Mary, Joseph, and shepherds. The bums. The dregs of society. The ones you would never let your daughter date. Those are the only ones that actually saw Jesus the night that he was born. Why? Why do you think this? Jesus begins to repeat this pattern, by the way. So God chooses the very bottom people to elevate. Jesus, when he resurrected from the dead, you know the very first people to see the empty tomb were two women? Not men, two women. And in Jesus' day, women's, a testimony of a woman wasn't even admissible in court. You had to have a testimony of a man. So the very first two eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus were two people who could not testify in court to the resurrection of Jesus. So why did God pick them to be the first ones? Because God always pursues those who are farthest from him first. He always has. That goes all... Abraham was a worshiper of a moon god in Mesopotamia. And God goes, that's the guy I'm going to pick. David is the eighth-born son of Jesse, who's so unimportant, his dad doesn't even really consider him worthy of being considered in a, a family photo of him with his sons. That's who God picks. And the very first people he goes after to announce to the entire world that he finally kept his promise was the one person you'd never sit next to in the synagogue. What God is doing is he's putting the bar so low that everybody knows they can hop over it. Because if he's accessible to them, he's accessible to you. That's why God chooses Paul. Paul, the very first person to ever murder somebody for claiming that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. That Paul. The guy who made his living Killing women and children simply because they said that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. That's who God picks to write two-thirds of the New Testament. That's his pattern. And so for those of you who are here today and you say, there's no way in the world God can use me because I have addiction issues. Because I have a past I'm ashamed of. Because I've been divorced two or three times. Because my kids were taken away from me. Because I'm all alone. Like, what's your issue? What is it? What's the reason why you feel you're down here instead of right here? And what I want you to know is that the Christmas story is proof that God hasn't forgotten where you are. And where you are does not change how much he loves you. And out of all the people in this room, if there's only one person he could sit with today. You know who it would be? It'd be you. That's what the Christmas story tells me. It'd be you. So Jesus follows the same pattern when he picks his disciples. The angels tell the, the shepherds, the shepherds tell the world. Jesus picks the disciples. Excuse me, the angels pick the shepherds, the shepherds tell the village. Jesus picks the disciples and tells them to go tell the world. And the disciples were no better. 
of the disciples that Jesus chose, of the 12 disciples. James and John were mama's boys. They were the one that had their mommy come ask Jesus if her little boys can sit next to him for all of eternity. And she asked that in front of the other 10 disciples. Yeah. You ever had a parent embarrass you to death? It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. When your mommy walks up to Jesus in front of all your boys and says, can my little boys sit next to you for all of eternity in heaven? So you know those, those guys, and, and it did cause a fight, by the way, among the disciples. In fact, both times that that story's mentioned, both times it's followed by a big fight among all the disciples. Um, Peter was a big mouth. Andrew was just always Peter's little brother. Levi was a tax collector, so he wasn't even qualified to go into a synagogue. And Jesus goes, but I want you in my top 12. Simon was a zealot. Simon, what, like seriously, Simon's biggest goal in life was to murder a Roman. And Matthew, the tax collector, worked for the Romans. Like he sold his people out to work for the Romans. I'd like to see, I like to imagine that the Last Supper, Jesus put their name cards right next to each other. The biggest Republican and the biggest Democrat right next to each other at the Last Supper. That's what Jesus, but, but Jesus took some radicals from both sides of the political spectrum, right? He did. Uh, but there's nothing in the Bible that Simon ever did. All we know is that he wanted to kill, he was a zealot, and we know what zealots did, they wanted to kill Romans. So Jesus picked, that's one guy that he picked that never did anything in the whole Bible. Thomas is famous for doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. The guy goes, I, I want a guy who doesn't believe in me to be in my top 12, Right? Uh, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, James the Lesser. How, how great of a name is that? <laughs> you got James and John, and then you got James. You know, who's that one? The moron. That's what the lesser is. James the moron. Thank you. Judas, Thaddeus, his brother. Um, the, uh, then Nathaniel, and the only thing Nathaniel's ever known for is that God saw him under a tree. And he said, you saw me where? And that's the only phrase we have in the whole Bible that he ever said. And then the last one that Jesus picked was possessed by Satan. Judas, the one who betrayed him with a kiss, right? The Bible says that Satan entered him when he betrayed, when like, <laughs> listen, <laughs> you would never let Jesus pick your football team, ever. Don't. Don't let him pick your football team. Don't let him pick your basketball team. He's a horrible picker of talent. You know Why? And he's still doing it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to see this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that, the power, uh, that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world Things counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing what the world thought was important. And it goes on to say, as a result, nobody will ever be able to take credit for what God does. What I want you to know from the Christmas story is that the brokenness of your past is what has drawn God to you. The fact that you recognize you are broken means that you are usable now. It's the ones who think they're all that that won't yield to God, that won't offer their lives to him. They think too much of themselves. 
It's the ones who think that they've pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's the ones who think that they are the heroes of the story. It's the ones who think that their wealth is what makes them great. Those are the ones who will never offer their lives as a living sacrifice. And it's not because God doesn't love them. It's because they will never love God because there's too many other things they love more. And for those of you, those of us, who are broken, it's easier for them to get to your heart. That's it. That's why he chose the shepherds. There was less obstacles. They knew they were broken. They knew they needed to be rescued. And that was the only qualifier. I want those who will make themselves available. That's it. So after this song, the shepherds left to see Jesus in Bethlehem. And then after they see him in Bethlehem, the Bible says, and then everywhere they ever went, they told everybody what had happened. Because a call to come and see is also a call to go and tell. It's what Jesus told the disciples the very first time he saw them. He said, follow me. And I will make you a fisher of what? If you follow me, the end result of you following me is that you will live your life in pursuit of those who are farthest from me. A call to come to God is a command to go and tell. It's the same thing. So at the end of Jesus' ministry to his disciples, he calls them together in Matthew chapter 28. And he says, now, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and, do, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them how to follow me. He had called them to get close to him so that he could send them to those who are farthest from him. I guess my question then is, are you willing to give up your rights to live a self-directed life? There's one last verse I want us to look at before we wrap up, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 19 and 20, because this isn't optional for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And I know that not everybody here is a devoted follower of Jesus. And if your reason for staying distant from God is because you feel you need to fix yourself first, the shepherds are proof that you don't have to. God will take you exactly like you are. But for those of us who've already found him and then have tried to put God into a box, you might not have who you think you have. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not... What are those last three words? You do not what? You do not... Everybody say it with me. You do not belong to yourself. You don't belong to you anymore. You know why? Next verse tells you why. Because God bought you with a high price. What price did he pay to get you? The life of his son. If he gave up the life of his son, he is not a jerk to ask you to return the favor. If Jesus could give up his life, there's no way in the world we could say in comparison to that, 
that we shouldn't give up our life for him. And that's what it looks like to be a devoted follower of Jesus. There's no options, but you have excuses. Your excuse is that you're busy, that is, the, the, the shepherds had that excuse. Your excuse might be that you don't have any credibility. There's people in your life that know what you're really like, and your word wouldn't count much with them. And the shepherds could have said the same thing. And it's actually thought by historians that these shepherds who were keeping watch over the flocks 15 miles from Jerusalem were actually the ones who were taking care of the sheep that were going to be offered as sacrifices. So they could have actually said, I'm already busy doing religious things. I don't need to do any more. And they would have had the exact same excuse as you. If Jesus had not let go of his rights, the disciples would have stayed disconnected from God for all of eternity. And if the disciples had not let go of their rights, then you and I would have never heard, and we'd be lost and separated from God for all of eternity. And if you don't give up your rights, you have friends and family who will spend forever separated from God in hell because you were too proud to share the faith that you have inside of you with them. That's not just my eternity that's riding on my faith. It's the eternity of my kids, my friends in Stoyak basketball, my friends on Seaver Street, everybody who's connected to me. Their eternity with God or without God is riding on whether or not I'm willing to share God with them. My life and my relationship with God matters to more than just me. And your life and your relationship with God matters to more than just you. And you will never be the person that God's calling you to be as long as you insist on running your show. At some point, if your life is going to become the one that God intended it to be, you've got to choose to give up rights to your life also. I'm just giving you the chance now. Because truthfully, over the next three weeks, this is the one time of year where religious people are allowed to ask every one of their friends to show up. We're given a free pass. Nobody will think we're a zealot. Nobody will be awkward talking to us. This is the one time of year where I can ask my Muslim friend to show up, and he might come out of curiosity. I coach his kid. Why wouldn't he? We're friends. I've had Jewish friends that I've got into spiritual conversations with about Christmas Eve that have asked me if it was all right for them to come too. And I said, yeah, they didn't come yet. But I'm praying. I'm going to invite them again. Right? I can't control what they do with it, but I can control whether or not I invite them for it. Right? That's what I can do. I'm going to have you bow your head with me. God, I'm glad that the ugliness in our past and even the ugliness in our present doesn't make you run away from us. Doesn't make you shun us. I'm thankful that you love me no matter what I've done. And I'm thankful that you love me exactly the way I am. God, don't let me stay the way I am. Move in me. If right now you feel distant from God and you're tired of that, you can ask him to save you too. Jesus, I know why you came. I know you took the punishment from God for me. I want you to forgive me and save me from the things I've done wrong. I'm sorry. And you gave your, just like you gave your life to me, I'm willing to give my life to you. I don't know what that means yet, 
but I'm committed to figuring it out. Could you make that your prayer? Jesus, save me from my sin. Help me to follow you with my life. If you're already a devoted follower of Jesus, but honestly, you live in camouflage most of the week. Then your prayer is, God, help me to die to my pride. Help me to recognize that I don't have any more rights over my life, that you don't have a greater right to in my life. God, everything I have, everything I am is yours, and I'm at your disposal. What you want from me, God, you'll get. Just put it in my heart. Can you make that prayer? God, be pleased by the prayers that we're making right now. I ask this in the great name of Jesus, and we all pray and say together, amen.